Hi, this is Sylvester here on KUCI. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, this is Dan Sang with Subversity. Uh Today, Martin Luther King Day, uh, a historic day, and also a historic day tomorrow. Uh, but we're going to look at uh, the foreign policy of this new Obama administration and some troubling signs. Uh, and with us on the phone is Gary Loop who's the uh, a professor at Tufts University of History. Uh, welcome, Gary. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, you know, you've written a number of pieces about Obama's and his uh, views on uh, and his policy on uh, Afghanistan and also uh, on the Middle East. Uh, what is troubling to you about Obama? Well, what's troubling to me is that he doesn't seem to be much of a change over George Bush. And uh, I think that's been apparent to me for many months, but I think many supporters of Obama have had the supposition that somehow he is going to really represent change and hope and be an alternative to George Bush, and that probably the reason that he's president now is the fact that he was able to take advantage of the hope and expectation that he was going to withdraw troops from Iraq and that he represented the, or that he constituted the anti-war candidate. But you've pointed out, uh, you've pointed out that, uh, that the fact that he's going to move troops to Afghanistan is no solution. Yes, he's uh, been declaring since mid-2007 that he thought that the, the real center of the war on terror ought to be and has in fact been Afghanistan, but that Bush took the, his eye off the ball and um, foolishly went into Iraq, which he has characterized as a, a huge strategic blunder. That's essentially as he's... Um, understood the Iraq war all along. He hasn't, that is to say, um, described that as a, an immoral war, uh, certainly hasn't called it a, a war of aggression or an imperialist war, but rather a kind of tragic mistake. And uh, what Bush really ought to have done is to have emphasized the need to go after al-Qaeda and to consolidate uh, victory in Afghanistan. And, of course, that's a continuation of U.S. imperialist policies. Well, you say, of course, and I say, of course, that's, that's certainly my understanding of the situation, but what he's um, uh, on record as saying is we need to send in more troops. His generals are saying 30,000, and I think he's on board that program, actually, um, U.S. has to send in more troops yeah. in order to, um, to to better control the situation in that country. <laughs> and the, the, the paradoxical thing here is that Hamid Karzai, who basically is the U.S. man in right. um, Afghanistan, he was hand-picked virtually by Zalmay Khalilzad uh, over the favored king at the... Um, uh, at the um, uh, uh, the big um, 
what's it called, the um, Jirga. That, oh, yeah, uh, the parliament there. Yeah, well, the, the big gathering that took place in 2002. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, the U.S. essentially hand-picked an English-speaking restaurateur from the Boston area <laughs> to to be the, the the Pashtun, the the Pashtun who had earlier been selected uh, as a longtime CIA asset had been killed, but uh, Karzai was the next best candidate for the position. But the real people calling the shots in Afghanistan are the the Northern Alliance folks, the, the Tajiks and Uzbeks, who have uh, long been on, on the U.S. payroll and also friendly with Iran and India. But the, the, the status quo in Afghanistan is basically a collection of warlords who are now making a lot of money from opium traffic and human trafficking, um, a, a very traditional kind of arrangement of warlordism with uh, the Pashtun, and Pashtuns are about 60% of the Afghan population, who is essentially the mayor of Kabul. And then you have the resurgent Talibs in the southern part of the country. And Karzai is trying to reach out to them, realizing that they're very uh, traditionalist and reactionary Sunni Muslim program has a certain appeal in the hinterland, and he's saying we have to negotiate with the Taliban. Few people realize it, but for a time, Karzai was the foreign minister of the first Taliban regime. But he's saying to the U.S. and the foreigners, I would like you to set a deadline to withdraw, and I would like to negotiate with Mullah uh, Omar. I'd like to give him safe passage to come and negotiate with me. And meanwhile... Uh, the U.S. is saying we need to have more troops in the country. They're not talking about setting a deadline at all. They have a bounty on the head of Mullah Umar. In other words, there are contradictions that are emerging between Karzai as U.S. puppet and the U.S. generals themselves. And um, uh, very little media attention is going to this paradox that... Uh, uh, in fact, even Karzai is saying, please withdraw. And by the way, please stop bombing civilians. I mean, bombings of, bombing of civilians are, of course, inevitable um, when you send in so many um, fighter bombs. And, and that's also the case with uh, Israel in the Gaza. Uh, why do you think um, Obama has not said anything, has kept his silence on the Gaza situation? Well, I don't know. Um, it would be quite remarkable should he, a couple days from now, give an address in which he says uh, Israel must understand that the U.S. is no longer going to give them carte blanche to engage in these kinds of uh, overreactions. Uh, the French President Sarkozy has used the term disproportionality and that's become quite respectable for Western leaders to criticize gently Israel for its disproportionate response. So it wouldn't be that great a political leap for Obama to say this was disproportionate. After all, uh, these Khazar rockets have killed 15 or 17 uh, Israeli citizens over the last two years, whereas the Israeli assault 
what the Vatican uh, diplomat has uh, referred to as a concentration camp, and that's what Gaza is, really. Uh, you kill 1,100, of whom one-third are children. I mean, he could use this kind of language and not be all that controversial. But that's not likely, is it? Well, I'm just saying, it, it, there's that option there. Um, having gone to such pains to to try to be the uh, the the uniter and build the bridges to uh, to all these factions, it, it is barely conceivable that he might surprise people by saying, "I really want to show that I am a moderate and a centrist and." We've bent the stick too much in the direction of Israel, and so it, it is just possible that he might pull a surprise and say, I, I really do want to to show some U.S. compassion towards the Palestinians and to urge um, a different course on the side so. of Israel. Yeah. I, I, on the other hand, right. I'm, just, I'm just saying that as a, you know, a, a possibility. On the other hand, when you look at his picks for his his cabinet and for key posts, the um, the selection of Dennis Ross as uh, apparently the, the number one guy under Hillary Clinton for the State Department on the Middle East and and uh, apparently as a kind of special envoy to Iran, uh, the selection of Dennis Ross is really troubling. I think that's why you emailed me and suggested that uh, we do this interview is because you read my piece. Uh, yeah. dissident voice about Dennis Ross. And you called him uh, Obama's neocon. Why yes. did you say that? Well, because of his association with um, the really bad guys, Richard Pearl and Wolfowitz, and those who are fully exposed for their uh, thoroughly pro-Israel, pro-settlement uh, ideology. Well, Dennis Ross, if you do the research, is is very much in that same crowd. He he was a co-founder of APAC, which is uh, well, I, Israel's I, I, uh, propaganda arm in the U.S. I think that uh, I was wrong on that, and a, 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 a number of people are wrong on that because uh, some websites have have replicated a, uh, an error. Uh, it goes back to to one misrepresentation on one standard um, uh, reference site. Uh, no, apparently he's not a co-founder, but he is a member, and he's a member. Yes, yeah. he is a member, so and uh, corrected. Yeah. Yes, uh, he's a co-founder of WinApp, which is a kind of sister organization, and um, described by. Uh, uh, Rashid Ahmed of Colombia as the number one propaganda body of, uh, in favor of Israel. It's a more academic type of, uh, of organization, but involved in the Camp David negotiations, which, as you recall, uh, enunciated the principle of uh, Israel evacuating the West Bank and that becoming the the basis of a Palestinian state on the basis of uh, peace. Uh, he later facilitated the Israeli government's uh, establishment of more settlements 
and uh, finessing that with the U.S. politically, essentially saying to the Israeli government, well, there won't be that much of a backlash in the United States if you go ahead and continue to establish settlements. And now you've got about 300,000 uh, Israeli settlers on the West Bank with the idea being we're creating facts on the ground that are going to be impossible to uh, to uh, undo. Okay. And the Bush, the Bush administration essentially conceded that and said, well, we really can't go back 20 years or so. And so the Bush policy has been to renegotiate and to say, well, we'll, we'll trade uh, other land and we will have a contiguous state, that is, there will be land that will link Gaza to the West Bank, so there will be a contiguous Palestinian state, and in return, Israel will absorb uh, some of, of Palestinian land. But time passes, those Israeli settlements grow, and more of them continue to be established. And there's a strong faction within Israel that says, this is part of Eretz Israel. This is the land that God gave to us. There is the, the Christian Zionist lobby in this country, which is much more significant than the, the religious Jewish Zionist lobby. And I think the bet is that uh, there's not going to be a significant Palestinian state. And that's what... Obama is going to have to cope with. Do you know um, uh, what's your analysis of how the war started this time, or why, or why it started? The Israel Israel blames the Hamas, and Hamas blames Israel. Um. Well, the, the Israeli charge is that we just couldn't put up with this constant barrage of Qassar rockets and so on. Um. First of all, if you look at these rockets, if you see some of the photographic images of these rockets, a, a lot of them are, are, are really small. I mean, they're the length of your arm. And uh, a lot of these are, are not imported from Iran. Uh, a lot of these look to be homemade. These are desperately launched from from Gaza soil, some by Hamas, some from Islamic Jihad or other organizations. They're acts of desperation and frustration in response to the cutting off of food and medical supplies by Israel. This done very deliberately as punishment for the election of Hamas in uh, January of 2006. Uh, there had been, there was the uh, unilateral ceasefire or, or truce that was proclaimed by Hamas after being elected. There was the Egyptian-brokered ceasefire uh, uh, last year. The Israelis have violated these. Hamas is generally shown restraint. The uh, Israelis, and this has been acknowledged by CNN and, and other mainstream press, broke the current truce in the first week of November. 
but anyway, um, my point is that uh, Gaza Palestinians have indeed been shooting off these rockets, generally ineffective, although they do certainly generate fear, which is the point. The point is yeah. you, you cannot subject us to this collective pain, which does result in people dying for lack of medicine and so on, without any kind of response from us at all. And our response as weapons of the week is these primitive rockets that we're firing that have resulted in the death of 15 to 17 civilians on your side over the last couple of years. As yeah. for the timing of the Israeli response, uh, why did it have to occur in the last week of December? I think it has a lot to do with domestic Israeli politics, which is to say the um, the um, the coalition in power vis-a-vis the Likud party in order to um, kind of bolster their macho credentials vis-a-vis uh, Netanyahu. And also I think it was a test of the uh, Obama forces to see how they would react. The Bush administration, of course, reacted by saying, yes, we understand Israel's doing what they have to do. And that uh, exchange between Condoleezza Rice and Olmert was kind of interesting. You recall that she helped to compose a UNSC resolution and was prepared to vote for it. And then Olmert claims that he called up Bush, who then called up Connie and said, don't don't vote for it. Hmm. And she, in fact, didn't vote for it at the last minute to the, the, the puzzlement of other U.N. ambassadors. And then he, he claimed that he shamed her by forcing the president of the U.S. to tell her not to vote for it. Um, and then the State Department kind of denied that that had happened. But I, I think that this is an effort of Israel to show what power Mm-hmm. It can exercise vis-a-vis the U.S. government. So in, in terms of the Bush administration, um, the fact that Obama hasn't said anything might be a source of some, uh, of some concern to the Israelis. On the one hand, they're probably happy that he didn't come out and say anything denunciatory, but they might be nervous that he didn't say anything in overt support either. Hmm. Nor did Ackerman when he appeared on Meet the Press or something. Uh, And uh, I don't think Rahm Emanuel did either. I think they're pleased that he has some prominent Zionists in his immediate circle, but they might be worried. Yeah, I wonder. uh, I don't know. I I think that they probably would have liked to, to, to get the to get a, a sense of where Obama stands in these days before his inauguration, but I don't think that they've gotten much of a sense yet. One of the one of the historians here at UC Irvine, Mark Levine, has written this piece uh, that was published in what that was published in Al Jazeera and also in on the History News Network, where he suggests that the arguments that Israel gives for um, but the, that this is a defensive war is uh, is not valid because he says that even the Israeli uh, 
intelligence think tank, the Intelligence and Terrorism Inf- Information Center, in uh, last December, uh, j- just reported uh, that that was sporadically violated this truce, and then not by Hamas, by but by other so-called rogue terrorist organizations. Yeah, Hamas actually jailed people for for firing rockets huh. when when they found them. But and, it's it's possible to send off rockets yeah. without um, being detected. And they said the in this report said that the escalation and erosion of the low arrangement occurred after Israel Israel killed half a dozen Hamas members on November fourth without provocation, and then yeah. Uh, yeah. In, and then uh, placed the entire strip under Gaza Strip under more intensive siege the next day, which is um, yeah, which is uh, Levine's uh, uh, comment. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, do you know if? Uh, Israeli populace, popular support for this has been eroding. Uh, I read an account where a doctor, uh, who an Israeli doctor who was working in the Gaza, uh, had his two daughters killed, um, and she, he was a, you know, a volunteer who wanted. I mean, uh, a doctor went to the Gaza to work for peace, and he was about to be on TV, and he he called. I think uh, you. I think it's. Um I think it's a an Arab Israeli Arab Israeli, by the name. Right, right. Yeah, Arab yeah, Israeli, yeah. Right. And he had been going back and forth with some trouble, but but uh, getting in, and then that was what how they rewarded him for um, for doing yeah. humanitarian work. Yeah, I've I've read about that, but not not very closely. I I would hope that this would help to erode support, but the statistics statistics I've seen are pretty overwhelmingly in support. The polling polling data, yeah. Yeah, in, in Israel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you think it would resolve itself if, yeah, you suggested Obama might come up with a statement, but how uh, how would it, uh, what, what would well, it I, do? Well, I'm, I'm saying that that is a possibility. I don't, right. I just don't want to to um, suggest that there's any inevitability here. I am doing a lot of thinking about why this total support for Israel exists. As a Marxist, um, I find it very difficult to, to understand this in traditional economic terms. For example, it's not big oil, certainly, or the military-industrial complex in general that is backing this total support for Israel policy. The Israel lobby um, is not a lobby that makes an argument that this is really good for the health of the U.S. economy. It's not like the occasional intelligence and and military services that Israel provides to the United States justifies two and a half or three million billion dollars in U.S. aid every year. And it's not like the the costs to to American capitalism are really justified by the returns that are received through the investment in Israel. But don't you think the weapons manufact- uh, manufacturing here uh, would uh, support 
you know, it's because Israel is the, you know, getting all its weapons from us. Wouldn't it uh, support the military, military industrial complex? I, I, I don't think that that alone would would really explain it. I think that there are ideological issues. I think, in particular, politicians' concern uh, for the support of uh, religious voters who believe that the reconstitution of a Jewish state in Israel in 1948 is the fulfillment of prophecy, mm. concern uh, with their support. It, it, this has to be understood in large part, I think, ideologically. But that could change. In, if there are decisions made that it's more important for us to maintain friendly relations with the Arab world, with the Muslim world, than to uh, maintain this close association with a nation that is perceived as vicious in its policy towards the Palestinians. This last instance is really a question, as I wrote in one column was shooting fish in a barrel mm -hmm. with virtually no appreciable resistance inaugurating this blitzkrieg on a, a captive population they cannot flee yeah yeah They're trapped and uh here you are uh attacking anybody in a, a hamas uniform they can be traffic cops anybody at all attacking uh, military or, or police training centers and, and basically inflicting fear and trying to instill a sense of defeat. That is really the, the psychological intention, to make these people realize that they are defeated and that they have to obey. And this is followed up by Condoleezza Rice's comment that um, really these people need to vote for uh, Fatah, and for Mahmoud Abbas. And then, um, you know, uh, Gaza can be reconstructed by Saudi money, and so long as they obey, then Israel will lighten up somehow. But I, I think that this international perception that the Israelis are using sheer brutality in order to, to force these people to obey and submit uh, it can really backfire, it can really make the United States look bad, and at a certain point in the not-too-distant future, there could be a reappraisal such that corporate America might decide to rethink its relationship to, to Israel. Even though he's hired, he's picked these people that are pretty much uh, not for change. Obama, I mean. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm saying that, that that's not necessarily... Inevitable, yeah. Inev inevitable that uh, right now the, ideolo the ideological proclivity of those in power is to, to follow the lobby, but the, the logic of U.S. imperialism itself might cause a change in policy. And I'm saying that as someone who's opposed to U.S. imperialism itself. You've studied uh, history of wars, and, uh, or at least history, and uh, I mean, 
when you bomb people, they don't usually submit, do they? Uh, I guess it depends on how bad. <laughs> so, uh, well, there are people who've been exterminated historically, but that's true. Yeah, uh, I mean, people that put up resistance and they hate you more. Uh, yeah, that's been the case with the Palestinians so far. Yeah, um, we're listening to an uh, interview with uh, Gary Loop, a professor at Tufts University. Uh, this is Dan Sang with Subversity here on KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. Um, so how do you think it's going to... Um, um, do you feel that... Do you believe that they're going to set up a, some kind of a commission to deal with this in the aftermath of this truce? I don't know. There's been talk about um, some sort of international force being stationed within Gaza, Hamas's rejected that. There's been talk about an international force um, beyond that which already exists uh, policing the uh, Egyptian border with uh, Gaza in order to prevent weapons smuggling. Um, I have no idea what's going to, uh, to take shape in the next week or so of negotiations. What Israel wants is to get rid of Hamas, right? Yes. And uh, I think there has been some uh, negotiations, no doubt, behind the scenes between Israel and Egypt and the Palestinian Authority under Fatah. And, yes, and uh, the United States. And, and some of the Arab countries don't want Hamas either. Uh, I think, generally speaking, the Arab governments do not like Hamas. They see it as a threat to themselves. Yeah, but it yeah. needs to be emphasized that Hamas was democratically elected in January 2006. <laughs> and right. that was a, a result of the disillusionment of the Palestinian masses, both on the West Bank and Gaza, but particularly in Gaza, where they got a, a greater share of the vote. Uh, yeah. the disillusionment with Fatah, because having signed the Camp David agreements, which established the Palestinian Authority and gave them limited administrative authority over the Palestinians in the occupied territories, which means right to collect taxes and uh, control over things like postal services and telephone services and, and a kind of proto-state apparatus under under uh, Israeli control, they received office space and salaries and uh, reputations for corruption. Yeah, yeah. And, and inefficacy and very little progress towards an actual Palestinian state. And on the other hand, Hamas developed a reputation, and Hamas goes back to um, the 1980s when... Uh, it actually arose out of Israeli-funded mosques in Gaza because the Israelis felt that supporting Muslim fundamentalism would uh, weaken the secular-based political movement. Huh. And there's good documentation of this, and it was something acknowledged by Yasser Arafat as well. I'm going to publish something, actually, that... that um, 
brings a lot of this stuff together. Okay. But um, uh, Hamas received support because its members were seen as religiously upright and principled, and they provided a lot of social services to people, rather like Hezbollah in Lebanon, although Hezbollah is a very different uh, uh, type of, of group. It's Shiite Muslim, not Sunni Muslim. And it's much more closely affiliated with Iran. There's a lot of talk about Hamas being in uh, Iran's pocket, but it's more closely associated with Syria, hmm. actually. Hmm. But anyway, so uh, Hamas is democratically elected into power, and that's something that the U.S. and Israel just can't forgive. And so they subject it to uh, essentially a boycott, saying to the people of Gaza, if you're going to elect these terrorists, then we're going to cut off your food supply and your medical supply, or we're going to minimize it so that you, you pay. And then in June 2007... Uh, in a plan apparently authored by Elliot Abrams in the State Department, uh, one of the surviving neocons at that point, hmm. Fatah attempted to seize control in Gaza, but failed. And Hamas was able to uh, essentially pull off a counter-coup. But that's been represented as a power grab by Hamas, which reverses the actual situation. It wasn't Hamas that seized power, which is to say elbowed aside its partners in the Palestinian Authority, the Fatah. It's rather Fatah that tried to use their power on its own behalf, but Hamas um, got word of what was going on, and so it preemptively took power. Right. I'm not sure where I was going with this. but Yeah, but what role do you see uh, former President Jimmy Carter playing? He called... Uh the Israeli treatment of Palestinians apartheid in his book. Yes. And, uh, and so do you see him as playing a role in the new Obama administration? Well, look what happened to Jimmy Carter as a result of writing that book. And I'm no big fan of Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, uh, I think, would like to be remembered as a president who emphasized human rights right. coming to power after the Reagan administration, the Ford administration, that were so tainted by, well, so much evil. But uh, he, of course, uh, was president when the Shah of Iran was toppled, and he allowed him to be received to the United States and didn't extradite him to stand trial in Iran. And uh, he was also the president when... Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski talked about using the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan to bleed the Soviets and to, to bleed them as the Soviets had bled the United States during the Vietnam War. And he was president when the U.S. began to uh, recruit Muslim jihadis from around the world in Afghanistan, thereby ultimately producing al-Qaeda and the Taliban and so on. But anyway, this Jimmy Carter uh, happens to be a bright guy with a 
fairly dispassionate attitude towards the Middle East, so he writes this book mentioning Israeli apartheid, and as a result, he's excluded from even appearing at the Democratic Convention. <laughs> because uh, Alan Dershowitz basically he uses his clout and the lobby's clout to force him off the stage. But anyway, uh, it, that just tells you the limits of of honesty that are allowed in the contemporary political environment. So I don't know. I, I think um, Obama would confront a lot of opposition if he tried to to make use of Jimmy Carter. I think they did have lunch or breakfast, right? I mean, with the former presidents. The former presidents did meet. Yeah, all, all together in the White yeah. House. Yeah, yeah. That was not his initiative. That would have been Bush's initiative. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Carter came, in, to, Carter came to give a talk at UCI after the book was published, and uh, we've actually, uh, we taped the talk, the KUCI did, so I've been actually playing it sometimes, um, um, mm-hmm. because it, it does, uh, one thing he did say was he encouraged students to go visit there, and um, and a couple of uh, groups actually did go, Is Israeli student group and a Muslim student association on campus did send a delegation over uh, and, um, you know, came back with kind of observations on person-to-person, kind of student observations on what was going on. I'm not sure if it changed anybody's mind, but, yeah. Yeah. Dialogue is good, yeah. Um, you, uh, I noticed you also t- wrote about uh, um, Bill Ayers, and you had signed a petition supporting him when he was the focus of uh, right-wing attacks. Uh, during the campaign, uh, yeah, and um, actually, uh, people forget that it was Hillary Clinton that brought it up, uh, that brought up Billy as uh, um, uh, Obama's uh, ties to Bill as uh, during the earlier part of the campaign. Uh, why? Uh, what? What is? Why do you think that uh, s- kind of smear job didn't uh, stick in the end? I, you know, I didn't realize that Clinton is the one who had brought it up before yeah, Palin. Yeah, he had brought it up in the, one of the primaries, yeah, at, at one of the debates or whatever it was, uh, and uh, actually, and uh, and then uh, uh, I guess uh, McCain uh, continued it later. Uh, that's a good question. I suppose that the people who supported Obama uh, would not be much influenced by that sort of argument. Because people looking back at that period would have a kind of sympathy with anybody opposing the the Vietnam War. I think that the that raising the anti-war protests, even extreme and violent ones of the 1960s, uh, would just kind of augment. Obama's anti-war credentials, which again I don't think are very strong to begin with, but to uh, you know to, to to kind of associate him with that era of opposing an unpopular war could backfire to those trying to do it. But why didn't it? Uh, did it really? It didn't mobilize enough people on the right, I guess, huh? Right, so, right. It, it, it would simply speak to the. To speak to those already hostile to Obama, I don't see it bringing more people into 
into the hostile camp. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. The um, the fact was that he, uh, I mean, the right kept digging into it. They've dug up uh, Prairie Fire, the you know where the underground uh, manifesto, and yeah. looked at some words in the introduction that uh, Bill Ez wrote, uh, supposedly, and um, it was supposedly credited. Uh, he he acknowledged or he gave tribute to <laughs> Sir Han Sir Han, and. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So there's all this kind of side things that came out during the the campaign, uh, but nothing really stuck. Yeah, I don't know. I I'd have to think about it. But um, but you in your piece you did say that it was good that the '60s got brought up. Yeah, and and uh, as I recall that piece, it seems so long ago now. But um, <laughs> that that. Uh, that raising the specter of the '60s—that was the title of it, right, as I recall. Right, right. That was um, something that was likely to backfire because a lot of us—and I'm 53 now—look back at that period of the '60s uh, as one of positive energy, of of uh, you know fighting back against oppression and racism and sexism and. And a lot of Obama's support, a lot of his youthful support, comes from people who, who see that period uh, in a very favorable light. And then there are people who see that as the, the cause of all our problems, people getting uppity. And, you know, uh, let those people maintain their stance. But I, I didn't think that that would be very politically useful. And I was right. Some liberals don't like that period, though, like the editor of uh, The Nation, uh, Van Heuvel, right? Uh, she wrote a piece attacking Bill Ayers, saying he was just an yeah. arrogant, uh, violent guy. And, uh, and the LA yeah. Times did the same thing in their book review of his reprint of Fugitive Days, uh, Ayers' mm-hmm. uh, autobiography about those days saying he was as arrogant, the headline was some arrogant Yeah, well, well it, it, it's, one, it's one thing not to like him. And it's another thing to try to adduce the specter of the 60s in toto. And, and I think that was what was going on there. Um, if, if, if somehow you associate Obama with the 60s as a decade, that kind of prettifies him. That, that associates him, I think, with, with positive memories on behalf of today's youth. College kids today, they look at the 60s as this really cool time. They kind of they see, they see the pro- Do they, you think they romanticize it somewhat? I think, I think they do, and that's not bad. That is, they, they don't see it as a, uh, as a threatening time. I ah, think a lot of yeah. people in their, in their 70s, maybe, they see it, well, that's when society really started to decay. Uh-huh. That's when that's when our values really started going downhill. There's a lot of you know very reactionary people who see the the 60s in a negative light. But uh, our youth today, I, I think, see that as the decade when things started to get a lot better. For sure, yeah. Do you believe that? Uh, so they don't. They're not really. They don't know about the ideological kind of uh, debates that the left had in those days uh, they wouldn't care <laughs> well some do some don't but um, yeah 
uh, we need to educate them. Yeah, what, what, a lot of, uh, oh, yeah. we need we need to educate them. Yeah, this is. Uh, do you find that as a, a professor, do you find that um, how do you reach them if people are just you know looking up stuff on the web now? And is that why you write for Dissident Voice, which is a web publication, that you can reach more people that way? Well, I started writing for Counterpunch, not right. for Dissident Voice. Yeah. And that, uh, I'm not sure how I branched out into Dissident Voice. Maybe I submitted something to Counterpunch, which, which was a little bit too radical. And since they wouldn't post it, I, I shifted to Dissident Voice. Who, who but, is, um, uh, so they, you think Counterpunch has become more liberal? Oh, uh, it, it depends. Um, Counterpunch has been willing to post pretty much everything that I send to them. There might have been one piece uh, comparing Mao Zedong and Jefferson that, that didn't fly that one time. But anyway, I can't complain. Uh, do, do, they but, pay, um, do they pay at all? No, 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 oh, no. Okay. That's, that's the beauty of it. That, that's uh, the beauty of it. It's it's all just, uh, you know, self-expression. And yeah. if they want to post it, they do. If not, no hard feelings. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. I'd, um, I'd publish something in the campus newspaper in January 2002 in opposition to the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan and the whole concept of the war on terror. Yeah, yeah. It was quite early on in this whole business. And uh, a friend of mine suggested sending it to Counterpunch, which I did. And then I just started sending in commentary about Operation Balikitan in the Philippines and... Mm -hmm. Uh, the Pankisi Gorge stuff in Georgia, just critiquing what I was reading in the news logically, because it looked to me as though there were lots of interventions that were being put under this general rubric of war on terror that were designed to prepare American public opinion for a massive series of, of interventions. Um, and that's how I, I got started. My main work is on Japan. Tokugawa, Japan, yeah. 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, and that's a, enough work to occupy 60 hours a week, but I just felt uh, morally yeah. and politically motivated and charged to make use of my right. research skills and writing skills to comment on things that had a bit more importance than 17th century Japan, at least at is the time. And the time hasn't hasn't passed in which I feel like I need to yeah. contribute to this discussion. More urgent, yeah. The uh, do you feel uh, do do you feel that uh, it's better than doing your own blog? Well, my kids keep saying, "Dad, you should have a blog," but <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, maybe I should. It's, I mean, yeah, I mean, it depends. If you have a lot of content in the blog, then it gets noticed, right? So, uh, yeah. But, I mean, you get noticed anyway on these other... Uh, right, 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 yeah. right, right. Yeah. 
Do you uh, is there any fee- uh, negative feedback among your students at all? Oh no, no. Yeah. No, and and uh, I don't know how many of them pay attention. Some do. Some are very interested. But um, I think I have different kinds of uh, relationships with different students in terms of helping them with their research yeah. on all kinds of arcane historical topics, and so uh, this is not really central to my academic work at all. How about this? Uh, in your attempt to paint uh, the academy as this hotbed of radicalism and try to. Uh you know, name names, I guess, and uh, have you been targeted like that? Um, not particularly. Uh, you know, occasionally I get on some list, and uh, often I'm not, in which case I feel kind of neglected and disappointed, but <laughs> I'm, I'm not one of those stellar figures like Chomsky. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I, I have a humble... A humble role in all of this. Yeah, you don't want to have to have a bodyguard or something. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think we're there yet. No. <laughs> so, um, I mean, do you see that this is a historic occasion, right? This on, uh, inauguration. I do, and I don't think that that should be downplayed in any way. It's very significant that in a country that was established by slave owners, we now have. Um, an African-American president, and the the joy, you know, the celebratory atmosphere should not be dismissed. Uh, You know, it's not as though Obama is the descendant of slaves. He is the son of a Kenyan immigrant and a white woman from Kansas who grew up in Hawaii, like I did, Oh, I can yeah. I can I can kind of understand the environment that he had at Punahou High School. Oh. I went to Rad I went to Radford High School, which is a big rival of Punahou. Oh, I, I, I I can understand him probably speaking uh, an upper class version of Pigeon, and knowing how to talk the kind to people all around the island, and having a very multicultural. Um, attitude and the ability to negotiate culturally with a lot of different people. So I can see him getting along with all kinds of people, assessing situations very carefully. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a historical moment. I think he's a very interesting kind of guy. I can see people assessing his character positively. I'm impressed with the way that he thinks on his feet, his articulate nature, his intelligence. It's very refreshing after watching a Bush press conference in which he's like a a deer caught in the headlights, you know, who, who, who really doesn't understand the question or know how to answer it. And then you see Obama, who's polished and confident and intelligent, you know, I, I can see why a lot of African Americans in particular are very proud and will say things like, you know, Rosa Parks sat so that yeah. Martin Martin Luther King could march so that Obama could run and now our children can fly and all that sort of thing. 
but he is the representative of the ruling class of a capitalist imperialist country and he is in a way in a box in terms of how he can operate on the world stage he's not going to change the system appreciably the system is likely to go into further crisis in my opinion yeah. and the fact that we've got a pretty face there with a lot of support and you know it was moving for me to watch bruce springsteen standing there with pete seeger yesterday oh. And then even singing that kind of band stanza from the Woody Guthrie song, This Land is Your Land. Yeah, yeah, You know, the, the yeah. one about, you know, the sign, no trespassing, and on the other side, uh, on the other side it didn't say nothing. Yeah, yeah. That you're never allowed to sing in grade school. Yeah. Because, because it's so communist. Well, they sang that right in front of Obama. I thought, wow. Huh. They never sing that part. Things like that are kind of moving. But, you know, what happens if he bombs Iran? Yeah. Then, you know, he's done something worse than Bush ever did. Do you think but, his, uh, the fact he was a, a community organizer has anything to do with it, how he deals with people now? Well, maybe, maybe his ability to work with people is what allowed him to be a community organizer. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe those skills will serve him, unfortunately, in persuading people that, well, you know, we did have to to bomb Iran. Yeah. But I, I would like some of his supporters to start asking him the difficult questions. Actually, they're not so difficult. But somebody should say, President Obama... In November 2007, all 16 U.S. intelligence agencies, these are presumably professionals, people who train at places like the Fletcher School at Tufts University. I'm just, yeah. mentioning, I'm right. just mentioning that because, you know, some of these people I know, yeah, yeah, these yeah. are like graduate students whom I would never recommend going into the CIA, but, I, you know, these are people that I know to be intelligent people of integrity who know how to do research. But people like that from 16 intelligence agencies pronounce with a high degree of confidence that Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program. Repeat, does not have a nuclear weapons program and hasn't had one since 2003. And even that bit is highly dubious because the the NIE, the National Intelligence Estimate, was held up for over a year because Dick Cheney's office didn't like it. And there was even talk about it not being made public, or the synopsis of it not being made public. And it looks to me as though that bit of information, that there was one up until 2003, might have been inserted um, in order to allow it to be made public. In other words, that part might be disinformation itself, because if you say, well, they had one, but then they suspended it, it weakens the conclusions of the, the whole group. But the NIE says, anyway, they haven't had one since 2003. Nevertheless, the administration keeps saying that they're pursuing a nuclear weapon as though it's an acknowledged fact. And Obama has towed that line. 
including in his first press conference after being elected. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Gary Loop of Tufts University, talking about the the risks that uh, Obama faces and the challenges, I guess, and the in continuing his role as this imperialist power uh, of the United States. Uh, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Where did the time go? Okay, thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, that was Professor Gary Loop. Uh, the audio will be online at KUCI.org slash Subversity. This is Dan Sang signing off for Subversity. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.